0: and open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. You can find it on page 81 toward the beginning. And we will spend some time there this morning. While you're turning there, I um, think about this. I think you'd agree that the way we relate to God, the way we actually relate to him, is oftentimes not the way we ought to. And I think the best... Way I've ever heard this described, the difference between how so often we do relate to God and how we ought to, is by C.S. Lewis. And he he puts it this way He says, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. Get that? So you come before God as judge or the accused. For the modern man, however, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge, God is in the dock. That's the British way of saying, in the place of the accused. A man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for him being a God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. I Think that's true? I love the way uh, C.S. Lewis reveals the arrogance of us humans, to think we could put God on trial. He is God. By definition, he is the one who is above us. He is the one who is in the authority. Uh, The scripture says, does the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? The answer is no. And yet how much do we do that anyway? I think about this past week. How many complaining words have come out of your mouth? You see, complaining is actually a form of judging God because he's the one who's put us in the same situation he, he has. We complain about the situation when we grumble. It's a way of judging God. In our sinfulness and pride, we put ourselves up and we bring God down. Well, I hope that our study of Leviticus, four weeks in Leviticus, will help reverse that, will help put God up and bring ourselves down. And I hope it'll do that, because this book makes abundantly clear that God is on the throne. God sets the agenda, and God tells people what to do, and God calls people to give an account for how they do it. Now, I admit, Leviticus is not the easiest book to read. When somebody's trying to read through the Bible in a year, they often stumble on Leviticus around the time of April or so. Because it's like, what happened to the nice stories in Genesis? This was going really well, and now we're in Leviticus, and... What's going on? Well, I admit it, Leviticus has some strange rules, some strange regulations, and it's about a system, the system of the law, that doesn't apply to us directly as believers. We're not under the law. The New Testament makes that clear. Now, I, I hope that as we go through the book of Leviticus, and as you'll even see this morning, that the book isn't quite as strange as you might think it is on first reading, and actually a lot more applies to us than you might realize. But the deeper message of the book, the message that I hope we all see, is actually reinforced by the strangeness of it. You see, the one, see, God is the one who calls his people to obey. And he has the right to call them to obey whatever he wants. So why does it matter if when you read the book of Leviticus you see that the priest is supposed to put the blood on the right earlobe and not the left earlobe? Or why does it matter that you need a cow in some cases or a bull in other cases? The answer, quite simply, is because God said so. And that's why it matters. Because he is the authority. He is the king. And this book presents us with a system where God expects his rules to be followed simply because God has said so. And friends, that will reverse the orientation that so often happens in our hearts where we become the judge. We think we have the authority, and the rules are optional. So, open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. It's best if you follow along in your Bibles. I think it'll make the most sense. Page 81. And I want us to see a couple of things from the very opening of this book that'll sort of orient us to the book overall. But before that, let me pray, because that's what we do when we gather together. We've got to do that. Lord, we come this morning as your people, and we ask you for your help as we look at your word. We are in need of your sustaining grace. We're in need of your guidance. And Lord, we come with hearts that aren't fully submitted to you. Lord, we are proud people. We are people who put ourselves up over against you. We do that through our complaining and grumbling. We do that the way we resent the situation you've given us. We do that the way we don't want to obey your laws. And we think that maybe we can get out of it. Lord, forgive us for that. And help us see in Christ how we as sinful people can be reconciled to you. And then through that reconciliation come under your authority that we may carefully obey you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what it says. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the people of Israel and tell them and say to them. Now, that's the only narrative you're going to get in the book. See, the rest of it, 27 chapters, is what God tells Moses to speak to them. And that's what the book is. And I want you to notice... Did God consult Moses on this first? Did God say, you know, here's the laws. I know you're heavily involved in the people. What do you think about this? Did God say to Moses, I want you to form a committee, and I want you to get the best people to think about what laws will be? No, God simply dictated what the people are supposed to do. And he can do that because he's God. He has the authority to command his people. And the people must receive his word and carefully obey his word. So God's the authority. I want you to notice something else that, that makes that in some ways easier to listen to. Where did God speak this to Moses? Did you notice? It's important. The details matter. Lots of details in the book of Leviticus. And every one of them matters. God instructs them from the tent of meeting. See that there? Now, that's the place that God had told the people to make for him when he took them out of Egypt. The people came out of Egypt, and they became his people, and he is their God. And then God told them to make a tent of meeting for God in the center of the camp. This is the place where God's fullness dwelt, uh, particularly. God dwelt in the tent of meeting. And it is from that tent of meeting that God gives them the rules. Now, that's important to realize. God doesn't give the people his rules as some aloof monarch too distant to really know what's going on or care about the people. So often we might grumble against things if we think something has come down on high and and does this person who makes these rules really know us? Do they care about us? God gives them the rules from the midst of the people and he is not simply their judge waiting to see how they're going to do. Hmm, I wonder how they're going to do with this law. And then he decides whether or not he will take them for himself. No, they are already his people. He is already their God and he speaks to them When he is with them, when he is in their midst, because he is their God and they are his people. Now, do you already see how maybe some of that could apply to our lives as believers? Um, I hope you see it. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're not a Christian because you first cleaned up your act and then got God to like you based on how well you lived. That's not why you're a Christian. If you think you're a Christian for that reason, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Actually, that's what the Bible would say. You didn't impress God with your ability to live a holy life first, and then you were accepted. First, you came to God in Christ. You came as a sinner, as someone who is ungodly, and through Christ, he accepts you, adopts you, cleanses you, makes you his own. And then you can live in obedience to him. You see, when God speaks to us as believers, he speaks to us through Christ the one who dwells in us, and we dwell in him. And then we can live in a way that is pleasing to him. So please understand that from the book of Leviticus, this is God speaking to his people. He is speaking to his people in their midst, from among them, because he is already their God, and they are already his people. Okay, in the bit of time remaining, we're going to overview the first Seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. I'm not going to read all seven to you. Don't worry. But we're going to look at the five offerings. And we're going to see how these principles that we've already talked about, how they're evident here. And we can learn from them. So, first is the burnt offering. You notice that right away in chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 1. Now, some might think, oh, I know what a burnt offering is. It's when you put something in the oven and then take a nap. And you're awoken by the smoke detector. And then what you serve your family that night for dinner is a burnt offering. No, that that might have happened, but that's not what this passage is talking about. It's called a burnt offering because this particular offering, the entire thing was burnt up. It all went up in smoke. Other offerings, they would use the meat for other purposes. This all got burnt up. None left. Let me read this to you. Chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides, of the altar that is in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, there's so much we could talk about there. As I said, all the details matter, and we could explore each one of them. But I want to focus in on that one word in verse 4, atonement. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering. It's a way of communicating identification. I'm putting my sins on this burnt offering. And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement. Now, the word atonement simply means covering. It was actually used, talking about, the same Hebrew word is used uh, for building the ark, that Noah was instructed to cover it in a certain way. It means covering. And in the case here, it is used for covering over sin. Here's the lesson. Sin is covered by blood. Sin is covered by blood. The way to cover sin, the only way to cover sin, is for the penalty of that sin to be taken on by another. And it is covered by the giving up of a life. You lay your hands on the animal, symbolizing the transfer of sin from the person to the animal. And on the Day of Atonement, they would even confess their sins over the animal to indicate even more strongly that the animal was taking their sin. And then the worshiper would kill the animal himself. This is a picture that something must die in my place. You see, the Bible teaches very clearly that the result of sin is death. Adam and Eve sinned and they died. The soul that sins will die, says the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death, says the New Testament. The death of an animal is how sin is covered. Try to put yourself in the the position... You know, imagine you're back then, bringing an animal for sacrifice. You get up in the morning, pick your animal from your, your uh, herd, the best you can afford. If you don't have any animals, if your job isn't a farmer, you go buy one, you inspect it, you make sure it's, got, it's perfect. It's got to be perfect. It's really expensive. You come to the tent of meeting with your animal. The priest gives you a knife. You slit the animal's throat. And blood goes everywhere. You skin the animal. And then the priest puts the remains of the animal on the altar. The fire is lit. The fire is going continually, actually. And the entire thing is burnt up. What would that teach you? I think it would teach you that God is holy, number one. Death is required for your sin. That's because God is holy. He can't dwell in the midst of sin. A penalty has to be paid because God is holy. It teaches you that you are not holy. That is why you have to give this offering. You have to think to yourself, I need something to die in my place. I need a covering. I need a sacrifice. That's what would be drilled into your head over and over again as you did this. And it teaches you that God provides a sacrifice. That idea is gone throughout the whole Bible. God provides a sacrifice from uh, God providing a sacrifice in the place of Isaac in Genesis all the way through the Bible, God provides a sacrifice for his people. And God provides a sacrifice for us in Christ. I remember a class that I took at a secular college, and we were working through the book of Leviticus, uh, looking at the Bible just sort of as a history lesson. And I remember this girl sitting in the back, and she was, we were reading these sacrifices, and she said, How, how do the people in the, from the New Testament not do these sacrifices. Remember it very clearly. She's like, it's so clear that a sacrifice is required. How in the New Testament do you not have to do those sacrifices? The teacher said, actually she pointed to me and said, I think that guy might want to answer your question. The point is, it's answered in Christ. Christ is the sacrifice. When John the Baptist pointed to Christ and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, would any Israelite who is familiar with this sacrificial system have missed what what John was communicating there. Jesus is that sacrifice. God provides a sacrifice. God is holy. I am not. He provides a sacrifice. Our sacrifice is provided in Christ. Now, the burnt offering was the first and most important offering because it shows how our relationship with God is established. It is established with the death of another. We need a sacrifice to make atonement for our sins. Now, let's look at the grain offering. That's the next one. Look at chapter 2 in your Bibles, Leviticus 2, verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. Stop there and just talk a little bit about the the grain offering here. The grain offering, a particular word is used in reference to the grain offering that, that basically means a gift of tribute. See, it's the way that one comes before God, brings a gift... One comes before God, one doesn't want to come empty-handed. One comes before God and brings a gift as a symbolic token. God doesn't need anything. He's perfectly clear about that in the Bible. Yet, it makes sense to come before God with a token and just give to him and say, God, I am yours. It's a way of saying to God, God, I serve you. God, this is for you. I give back a small portion of what you've given me because you are You are my master. You are my Lord. I just offer it to you. You speak I listen, you command, I obey. That's what the, the gift of tribute, the grain offering communicated. Now friends, just because we are not under this requirement by law to offer a gift of tribute to God, it doesn't mean that that pattern should be foreign to us. I think Paul is referring to this in Romans 12, where he says, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your reasonable act of worship. We come before God. We don't offer him a grain offering. We offer him ourselves. We offer him our bodies. We say, God, you are my master. I am your servant. Speak, and I will listen. Command, and I will obey. And we come to the Lord, offering up our lives to him. Friends, what are you offering to the Lord? Are you offering yourself to the Lord? as a sign of your loyalty to him. Lord, I am yours. Then there's the peace offering. This is perhaps my favorite of all the offerings here. Its requirements, if you read them in chapter 3, they're very similar to the burnt offering, except the animal was not burnt up. Rather, the meat from the animal had to be eaten within a certain amount of time. Chapter 7 gives the regulations for this. Chapter 7, verse 11. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for Thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. Now, think about what that could mean. It could mean a bull. Bulls weigh uh, 1,500 pounds. That's a lot of meat. Okay? Okay? They came and made this sacrifice, huge meat offering, okay? And meat was rare back then. It was a precious commodity. You couldn't just, outbacks weren't around. You could get steak whenever you wanted. You couldn't go to the grocery store. It was more precious than it is now. They sacrificed this bull, and they've got to eat it that day. Or then it turns into a burnt offering, and the whole thing goes up in smoke. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think a lot of it's going to go to waste? No. They'd have a big party, Come, everybody, come and eat. The peace offerings turned into a party. It's sort of like this. Uh, if you're at a restaurant and you really like the food, but you can't eat it all because the portions are so large, what do you do? You ask for a box so you can take it home, right? What if you're going to be out all day, it's going to sit in a hot car, and you know that's never going to happen, it's, that won't do. What do you do? You say, anybody want some? I can't take it home. Here, you want to try some? Take it. And, and that's kind of what the peace offerings were like. It was required sharing because you couldn't save any of it. It would be a big party. Um, I think when you read the Bible the, the meal that they had the father had for the prodigal son I think that might be a peace offering they, they sacrifice the animal they, they, they kill the, the fatted um, calf I think and And then they have a big party, and it makes it even worse that the older brother didn't want to come. Because the point is, everybody comes and feasts this peace offering. Now, there's a lot of things we could talk about here, but let me just explain how this illustrates an important part. Uh, Christianity is, on the one hand, very individualistic, right? And we see that in the burnt offering. How you lay your hands on the animal, symbolizing that the animal takes your personal sin. You need a sacrifice individually, personally. Something needs to take your guilt. But then you celebrate that that has happened in community. You see, you have the burnt offering, which is individual, and then you have the peace offering, which is inherently communal. It's corporate. You do it together. And friends, we must realize that our Christian life cannot be reduced to being utterly individualistic or being completely communal. It is both, and they both, both parts have to be there. If it's just individualistic, it ends up... I'm sorry, if it's not individualistic, if you don't personally own it, then it ends up being just dry and peer pressure, and it can turn legalistic. But on the other hand, if there's no corporate dimension to it, then you turn inward. It just turns into something introspective, feeling-centered. Just me and Jesus sounds a whole lot in the end like just me. It needs to be both. Now, lastly we see that there's the sin offering and the guilt offering. And I'm going to put these two together because they they relate. The sin offering is for unintentional sins. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Listen, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commands about things not to be done, or does any one of them. See, unintentional sins are when we break God's law, but not on purpose. It was an accident. Now, think about it. They're still called sins. They're unintentional sins. And I think the mere fact that that category exists, it bursts many of the ethical assumptions that people have today. And what do people think today? People always acknowledge there's a standard of right and wrong. But for many people today, that standard is constituted by what is internal. To be a good person, one lives up to one's own expectations. Be true to yourself is what we hear. I was preparing this message yesterday in Starbucks. And I noticed that there was a quote on my cup. You know, the the green uh, um, little carrier things they have now. And there's a quote from, I think, Oprah. And it says, live from the heart of yourself... Seek to be whole, not perfect. Live from the heart of yourself. Seek to be whole, not perfect. And I think that's what people think today. That's the ethical standard today. Try to be good, but that standard for goodness is entirely inward. Just be true to yourself. Well, There's a grain of truth in that. But friends, how do you think that system works if it is true that God is the one who made the rules? See, if it is true that God is the one who made the rules then we could violate his rules even if we don't intend to. And it is still a violation. It is still offensive to him. And in this system, it still required a sacrifice. As I was preparing the sermon and thinking about this, I noticed a curious thing started to happen in my life. I began to notice all the ways I was sinning but didn't realize it. I realized I was was just not patient with my children in that case. I didn't seek out and and intend to be. It just kind of happened. I wasn't listening well. I wasn't following through everything that I needed to do. I began to notice all the ways that I'm not living up to God's standard, even if I'm not intending to break the rules. Friends, consider, is the language that is coming out of your mouth pleasing to God? Even if you're not intending to hurt somebody, are the ways you're unintentionally sinning by what you're speaking, complaining, grumbling, gossiping? You might not be intending to break God's rules, but see, it's still wrong. Is the way you're relating to the people who are closest in your life pleasing to God? What about the movies you watch? What about the books you read? Are there ways you may be unintentionally sinning? You didn't intend to. But see, the person who really wants to obey God's laws is going to be sensitive to the fact that that maybe they're doing something they might not even realize they're doing, but they're going to be trying to seek it out, trying to conform to God's standard. And, friends, this brings healthy balance. You see, one of the things that we talk a lot about at this church, and for good reason, is that motives really matter. God wants our hearts. God doesn't just want us to conform to an external code. But that doesn't mean that there is no external code that God cares that we keep. God gives us rules, and he expects us to follow them. And it's our job to realize what those rules are and carefully obey. Now, let's look at the next category of sin, the guilt offering. This is in chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. I think it's verse 1 here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins, and pay attention, because as I said, all the details matter. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by, pay attention to how he, examples he gives, by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or if he has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely. And he goes on and on to talk about how that person must bring a ram for a guilt offering. Now, there's tons of things we could talk about in this passage, but I find it most remarkable for the way it relates our sin against God to those offenses we commit against other people. Okay, think about it. Look at the way the passage starts. If anyone commits a breach of faith against the Lord, a breach of faith against the Lord, what do you think might that include? Well, I would think idolatry, right? Worshiping a false god, not keeping the Sabbath, taking God's name in vain. Those are things that really would be against the Lord. But that's not what's on the list, is it? What's on the list? deceiving one's neighbor, robbery, lying to his neighbor, oppression, basically things you do to other people, things you do to your neighbor. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that how we treat our neighbor is how we treat God. The sin against our neighbor is the sin against God. You can say all you want. I love God. I want to do his will. But the real test How do you treat those other people who God loves, who are made in his image? How do you treat them? That is how you treat God. Think through a few examples. Husbands, you can say you want to follow Jesus, but how are you following Jesus and sacrificing yourself to build up your wives? Wives, you can say you want to honor Jesus, but how are you doing it, honoring your husbands as Jesus has called you to do? Children, children, you're here, Right? It's great that you're learning about God here. And some of you are learning the catechism, questions and answers. By the way, parents are going to get way ahead of you. You've got to come Sunday nights so you can keep up with them. They're at question 26 now. It's a lot of memorization they're doing. You're doing a great job, guys. But how are you doing at honoring your parents? Because they bring God's rules to you. And God tells you you need to obey them. How are you doing at being kind to others, not being a bully? Sharing. Parents, it's your turn now. Does does your patience towards your children in their sin reflect God's patience towards you in your sin? How about at the workplace? Do you realize God cares about justice? God cares about our integrity? Sinning against others, even in small ways, is sinning against God no doubt when we start thinking about how we treat others we see all these areas of sin in our lives and that's why in the old testament it required this guilt offering now let me just put this guilt offering in the context of all the other offerings let's just let me walk through them real fast first there's the burnt offering that's the one where the whole thing went up in smoke and that establishes our relationship with god through atonement that's the first and most important and then there's the grain offering. And that's how we acknowledge we come under his lordship. You are our God. We, uh, you are our master. We obey you. That's what the grain offering says. And then there's the peace offering. And the peace offering celebrates our peace with God in the midst of community. And then there's the sin offering and the guilt offering. And they acknowledge that even in the context of our relationship with God, we still need covering. We still need cleansing. We still need forgiveness of sins. In the New Testament, that concept is crystal clear. Listen to John 1.1. 1, 1. First John 1, sorry. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and, listen, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I think John is thinking about the sacrificial system here. And as Christians, we need continual cleansing from Jesus. That's why at our church, we pray prayers of confession. And we will in a moment when we take the Lord's Supper. That's why, as a church, we sing songs about the cross, about Jesus' sacrifice, not just as a way of inviting people to come to faith in Christ in the first place, but as a reminder of what we are as believers, debtors to mercy, in need of God's forgiveness. That's why, when I present the gospel in sermons, I don't just do it as a call for the unconverted to trust in Jesus. Certainly, we do it in that way, but I also present the gospel in terms of what believers need to own and take hold of. We must continually come back to the blood of Christ for covering, for cleansing, because we all need his blood. We need his cleansing. Now, that's the five offerings. Quick overview of the first seven chapters. encourage you, go back and read it in more detail. Talk about it amongst yourselves. What does he mean here? What does he mean here? There's lots of details that I did not talk about that all have meaning. But let me give you three questions to take home with you and think about. Don't have application questions printed for you today, but here's the application questions. Think about it. One: do you give God your best? Do you give God your best? I read this passage a few times this week, and I was struck by the need for one to present one's best to God. If you have the money, bring a bull. If you can't bring a bull, you can bring a lamb. And if you can't even afford a lamb, God makes an allowance for birds. But the point is, bring the best you can afford. And nobody gets off not having to bring anything. Everybody must bring their best to the Lord. Now, you might reason to yourself that, well, because the sacrifices in the Old Testament have their fulfillment in Christ, then the New Testament, well, there would be no more talk about us doing sacrifices. But you'd be wrong. Yes, the sacrifices are fulfilled in Christ, but the perfection of Christ does not then get us out of giving God our best. It actually raises the standard that we have to give to him. We must give our best to God, because he's given his best to us. And no, we aren't giving animals anymore. We're giving him our lives. We're giving him our bodies. We're giving him money for the spread of the gospel. We're giving God our best. Friends, are you giving God your best? Of course, that doesn't earn you salvation. That's not how you get into God's kingdom. But because you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, give God your best because of who he is and who you are. Number two, do you appreciate the blood? These sacrifices must have been a bloody mess. Do you have any idea how much blood would be in a bull? I don't, but I just imagine it's a tonne. And there's blood everywhere. The the priest collects it, sprinkles it on the altar. It's getting on the priest. It's getting on the person who sacrifices the the animal. And, And why is there so much blood? Because as the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The mark of a Christian is one who treasures the blood of Christ, who considers that blood precious because that is the way in which she is saved. And she is saved. And they love the blood. They love the blood not as an excuse for why they can keep on sinning. No, the Bible says that if you take Christ's forgiveness as an excuse to keep on sinning, well, that's a sign you're actually not a Christian. But they love the blood because it's the means by which they come to God and appreciate his holiness. Friends, do you appreciate the blood of Christ? Does it have an emotional impact on you? Does it have a spiritual impact on you? Does it cause you to celebrate in community? We're going to celebrate that in a moment. Finally, do you submit to his authority? That's what the book teaches, I think, most clearly. He is the king. We are his subjects. He sets the rules. We obey them. And because he is so perfect, and because he is so high, to break those rules is a grievous thing. God is on the bench, and we are on the dock. Let me ask you, are you fundamentally trying to live your life on your own? Or are you one who is submitted to his authority? Do you submit your lives to him? Do you come to him through Christ and submit your lives to him? Let me warn you, it will not go well for you if you resist God's authority. It won't go well for you in this life because he's the one who has organized life and it will go even more poorly for you in the life to come. But if you come to Christ trusting in His provision for you, submitting your lives to Him, then you will have nothing to fear in this life or the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You as Your people, not because we are the best, not because of our good works, not because we've earned it in the least. We come to You because we trust in the blood of Christ his sacrifice on our behalf, his giving up his life that we may have life. We come to you through Christ and we ask you to do a work in our hearts that we might be submitted to you rightly in all things. Lord, cause us to be more sensitive to sin that we would be aware of unintentional sins. We'd be quick to confess, quick to be convicted. Lord, if we've hardened our hearts in any way that that we don't even feel your conviction anymore. Lord, please soften that. Expose us to the justice of your law. Let us run to Christ, find in him provision for our our guilt and sin, and then be careful to obey you and what you've called us to do. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.